Illumination Entertainment has produced numerous animated films based upon a supervillain named Gru. He, uh, I think he bears a striking resemblance to me. I don't know if you see that resemblance or not, but there he is. Uh, this series also has uh, his most close associates, the Minions. Uh, they're pretty spectacular. And one of his closest associates and loyal associates is Dr. Nefario. This Dr. Nefario does research and development of high-tech gadgets that Gru uses to fulfill his goal of being the world's greatest supervillain. Yes, he tried to steal the moon. It's pretty, pretty nifty. Dr. Nefario is deeply invested in the life of crime and while he is Gru's most loyal supporter, uh, when Gru breaks from a life of crime in order to raise his three adoptive daughters, Dr. Nefario can't bear with life without crime. And at his departure, Gru sent Dr. Nefario off with a 21-gun salute. It's quite a scene. You'll have to watch that one for yourself. At any rate, his name is fitting. He is nefarious in his use of high-tech equipment. What you and I might look at as a piece of equipment that could be helpful and better for society, Dr. Nefario sees it as something to help further Gru's criminal pursuits. In other words, he employs good things for evil ends. He employs good things for evil ends. As we progress in our study of the book of Romans, we are continuing to learn about our sinful nature and its relationship to the law of God. Listen carefully to this statement. Our sinful flesh is the real culprit of evil. It, our sinful flesh, nefariously uses whatever it can to produce more evil and more gratification of its desires. Our sinful flesh nefariously uses whatever it can to produce more evil and more gratification of its desires. So what we have learned in Romans chapter 7 so far, we can highlight in a few bullet points. The law's dominion has ended for believers. We see that in chapter 7 and verse 1. The law's dominion, its leadership, its lordship is the actual word. Its lordship has ended for believers. Secondly, we noticed in verse 4 that Jesus' dominion has commenced. We have severed that relationship with the law so that a new relationship could begin. And that is that the Lord Jesus could have dominion over us. Thirdly, Jesus' dominion is fruitful. Jesus' dominion is fruitful. And then the fourth idea that we saw in our study is that under the dominion of the law, our flesh produced fruit for death. Under the dominion of the law, our flesh produced fruit for death. And then the final concept that we learned is this from verse 6. Under the dominion of Jesus, we serve by the Spirit 
rather than by the written code. We serve by the Spirit rather than by the written code. In verses 7 through 12, Paul is going to answer this one main question. It's a simple question Is the law sin? Is the law sin? He has been teaching us that the law does not restrain the flesh. The law does not make us right with God. The law does not quell the flesh. It doesn't do any of these things. It doesn't give us power. It only brings a reality and realization of sin. It provokes, arouses sinful desire within us. There's all kinds of things he said to this point about the law. And so it's a right question to ask, is the law sin? Well, in verse 7, he is going to give an immediate answer. And in verse 12, he's going to give a concluding answer. Take a look at verse 7 to start with. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? What's his immediate answer? By no means. Me genoita. The idea is, let it never be. We've said this over and over. Absolutely, under no circumstance. And in the King James language, God forbid. Absolutely not. No way, no how. The law is not sin. Look at verse 12 as his concluding statement about it. So the law is what? Holy. And the commitment is what? Holy and righteous and good. The answer is absolutely not. The law is not in any way, any shape, or any form sin. In verses 7-11, through 11, Paul will explain, I'm going to leave this on the, on the screen for those of you that take notes. Paul will explain that it was sin revealed by the law and provoked by the law that produced death by its deceitful use of the law. I'll say it again. In verses 7-11, through 11, Paul will explain that it was sin revealed by the law and provoked by the law that produced death by its deceitful use of the law. This is why I use that silly illustration to start. The Dr. Nefario illustration. Oh, you've got this piece of tech. Well, this piece of tech can help people. You can do things good for people. Or you can use this piece of high-tech uh, high, high technology to, to, to get something from people. You can use it nefariously. Well, the sinful flesh that we possess, that we are comprised of, uses whatever it can to get its end. And it will even use nefariously something that's good, like the law. And that's what Paul is going to teach us in these few verses. That our sinful flesh uses something good to accomplish an evil end. So first of all, sin is revealed by the law. Sin is revealed by the law. Verse 7 again. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So he gives us very clear information here that the law, while it's not sinful, it, it produces something good. And that is that we understand. We have a knowledge of sin. He's told us this previously. Take a look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. God's Word says, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes what? The knowledge 
of sin. Look at verse 15 of chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 15. It says, For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Or really the concept is a record of transgression. Look at verse uh, 13 and following in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 13 and following. It says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. He's letting us know that the law is unveiling and then accounting for our sin. The law unveils, reveals our sin, and then it holds us accountable for those things. It's recording them. Douglas Moo wrote this, and I think it's helpful. The law, by branding sin as transgression and bringing wrath and death, unmasks sin in its true colors. What the law does is it makes us understand the gravity of our sin. My friend, if you don't understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin, if you don't understand the terrible righteous consequences to sin, you will first of all have no real desire to turn from it and to accept and to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And secondly, you won't appreciate the deliverance that you've received. The law does us a great service of showing us just how sinful we really are and just how terrible that sinfulness is and just what the consequences of those sin is and the wrath that we deserve so that we say, this is not what I want. This is not what I need. This is not going to help me. And so we say, this is not my rescue. There's a rescue somewhere else. Where is that rescue going to come from? And so we look to the life offered to us. To the rescue offered to us. To the the righteousness offered to us. To the eternal life offered to us in Jesus Christ. The law does us a great service in teaching us boundaries. In other words, the law defines clearly that sin is a violation of a revealed standard. When we violate the written law, we have fallen short of a standard or crossed over a boundary that God has clearly set. The law demonstrates our rebellion against God. And Paul then, back in chapter 7, if you're there, Back in chapter 7, Paul uses an example of this, what the law does for us. He says at the end of verse 7, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Now, I find it very interesting, and you do as well, I trust, that he used that commandment. It's the last of the Ten Commandments. If if he used thou shalt not murder, you could say, well, I never murdered anybody. Now, Jesus would argue with you. He said if you've uh, been angry at someone, then you've murdered them in your heart. So Jesus wouldn't let you off the hook. But you could say, I never murdered anyone. 
well, I, I've never committed uh, adultery. I've, you know, I've never fornicated uh, this way. And, and so you could, you could say that I've, I have a clear conscience. But Jesus would argue with you and say, well, if you've looked upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. But, but you could say, I've never committed adultery. You could say, I never did those things. Nobody, nobody could say, I haven't coveted. This is the 10th commandment, and here's how it reads in Exodus 20 and verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. See, it's a commandment conveyed by God and it tells us uh, when we want our neighbor's car or our neighbor's fence or our neighbor's lawn, or our neighbor's job, or our neighbor's clothes, or our neighbor's watch, or our neighbor's fine crop of hair, or our neighbor's physique. Just list the... Th- there's, there's nothing, there's no way that you and I can get out of this. There is no way you've gone through life, however many years that you've been alive, and you haven't wanted what someone else has. It, the law just tells me I am absolutely, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Now, you can observe someone's house and not covet it. You can observe someone's car and not covet it. You can observe someone's uh, muscles and not covet it. You can, you can actually like, appreciate something and not covet it. But there's no way you go through life and never covet something that someone else has. It, it's just not the way it is. Our sinfulness is revealed by this concept. While we come to understand through the commandment what sin is, the commandment does not provide any power to avoid the sin that it prohibits. This is a very important statement. The commandment does not supply for you or for me the ability to obey its demand. It doesn't. Instead, What the commandment does, and and Paul's going to get to it next, sin is provoked by the law. Instead of squishing it down, holding it back, restraining it, imprisoning it, it's like it stirs it up. The the law says, oh, you you can't have that cookie in the cookie jar. It's still there. You can't have it. Don't touch it. Don't touch your neighbor's stuff. Don't want his grass. Don't want his fence. The law provokes. Listen, look at what he says in verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Sin is provoked by the law. Paul tells us the real culprit is what? At the beginning of verse 8. Sin. Sin is the real culprit. What does sin do in this verse? It says, seizing an opportunity. Seizing. The the word is a simple Greek term, lumbano. It means to grab something. Let me see if I can grab something. I just grabbed this box of tissues. I took it. That's the idea. It, It takes something. Sin, taking an opportunity. Taking, that's the lumbano. And then it says opportunity. Now this is a great word in the Greek. It's uh, a for, a forme, a forme. It means a base 
of operations for an expedition. A base of operations for an ex exhibition. Expedition, excuse me. In some military settings, this could be referred to as the forward operating base or FOB. Okay, so you've got your base camp and then you have this, this base camp that's a little further out that's ready to do an operation. We're talking about this place from, from which the, the operation springs from. Sin, taking, seizing an opportunity, a base camp, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Last September, a few guys, including my sons and I, went uh, on an Appalachian mountain trek. We had some big plans, but a few problems arose and we had to recalibrate our plans. So instead of doing what we were going to do, which was start in Vermont and wind our way into Massachusetts, and you know, we had all these... But it, we, we couldn't do it the way that we wanted to, so we found a base of operations on Mount Greylock. We found one place and we set up all of our equipment there. And from there, we went on several day trips uh, to go on some, some expeditions. But that, that base camp that we set up on Mount Greylock was that, that place, that forward operating um, base that we, we sprung forth and went and, and did what we were going to do. All of our hikes sprang from that base camp. As Paul is speaking of the law in this passage, he says that sin uses the law as a base of operations. Sin says, oh, oh, you're not supposed to do that? Well, let's, let's see about that. Let, let's see how we can manipulate circumstances and, and circumvent that restriction. Sin produces all kinds of covetousness out of the commandment, he tells us at the end of the verse. It produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Sin uses the occasion to set off all kinds of appetites. Now in the last chapter, when he was talking about mastery, remember, we were uh, mastered by sin, but now we're mastered by righteousness. We were mastered by sin, but now we're mastered by God. Remember that comparison that was going back and forth in chapter 6? Well, look at verse 19 just for a moment. He says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitation. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and slaves to lawlessness. What does that next phrase say? Leading to more lawlessness. When we, when we cater to our sinful flesh, it doesn't say, oh, very nice. I feel satisfied. I will rest now. What our sinful flesh does instead is, ooh, that was pretty good. Me wants more. And you know what else? Me wants more. And I get some more, and me wants more, and more, and more. Down, and down, and down, and down the rabbit hole we go. Our flesh is never satisfied. Well, back in chapter 7, he says that, that the, the law produces in me all kinds of covetousness because my flesh is desirous of more and more things. And my flesh uses the springboard of the law to find all kinds of new appetites. Paul uses another picturesque sentence at, picturesque sentence at the end of verse 8. Look at what he says. For apart from the law... Sin lies dead. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. The idea is that 
the law lies dormant. Excuse me, the sin. Sin lies dormant. Without wood, a fire burns out. But feed that fire wood, and it keeps on burning. Well, I have a a personal illustration of this kind of stirring up type of thing. Have you ever had your fuel filter clog in your vehicle? It's not a fun experience. I used to use my dad's gray conversion van, and I would drive it back and forth to Florida to go to college. Uh, on some of these occasions, you know, people were with me. Other occasions, um, I, I was by myself. But there was a period of time that this, this conversion van would have the fuel filter clog up uh, every now and then. It was actually kind of regularly. So I'd have to crawl under the rear end of the van and quickly take out the one fuel filter and put in the new one. But, you know, it's attached to a fuel line, so you've got to do this kind of quickly or it's going to spray all over you. And I don't know about you, but I don't like to smell bad about, like, with anything. And I really don't want to smell like gasoline. It's pretty, pretty nasty. Well, one time we were driving down. And I actually had my family was with me, my dad and my mom, and I forget who else. But we were driving through Atlanta, Georgia. And I don't know if you've been in Atlanta, in Atlanta Georgia, on the highways. It's like they're, they're clogged and, and, and busy and everything else. And we're driving down during a pretty heavy set of traffic, and, and the fuel filter's clogged. You can tell because it's just it's bogging down. So we pull over to the side, and I get underneath there. I'm trying to do this quickly. And before I finished the operation of putting the thing in there, my father t- turned the, the key, and so it shot all over me. You can... Imagine how happy I was when that happened. At any rate, uh, something in the fuel system was kicking up something to clog the filter. So here's the thought. In the the fuel tank, after a a period of time, some stuff settles on the bottom of it, right? And if the tank is filled with fuel, probably things will be okay because the the stuff will be settled. It will be calm at the bottom. But as soon as the, the level of gas gets low and the Gas starts rocking back and forth. There's oxygen in there. Some of that stuff gets kicked up, and then it can pass through the fuel line and then clog the filter. This is the kind of concept that is being, being conveyed here. Without the law, without the commandment, without the restriction, sin can lie dormant. All right? Just chill. Just throw an irritant in there, and the stuff kicks up, goes down the fuel line and clogs. Well, this is the idea. He's saying that the law is that stimulus. The law kicks up or activates the sin in my life. Well, this sounds bad, which is why he's answering this question, is the law sin? He's saying, no, the law is not sin. The law reveals sin in verse 7, and it even provokes sin in verse 8, but it is not in itself sin. In fact, Uh, What happens is the law is provoking my nature to reveal who I really am and produces something very negative in my life. Sin's provocation by the law produces death. Oh, that's a tough one. Sin's provocation by the law produces, results in death. Look at what he says in verses 9 and following. I once... I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, 
and through it killed me. When the law activated sin, there was an awareness that all was not well spiritually. Perhaps. Because this is Paul's personal testimony. That's why he's saying I. There's a lot of work done by commentators saying, well, the I is really representative of everyone. And that's fine. I don't have any problem if, if you take the concept that happened to Paul and then apply it to other people. Or really what's at, at work here is this is Adam and Eve because they were the only ones that were ever without sin um, at, at the beginning of their lives aside from the Lord Jesus. They were the only ones that, that were without sin, and then sprung into sin. So this is talking about Adam and Eve. All right, fine, if you want to go in that direction. He says I, but whatever. Uh, and then, No, this is really about Israel. They were fine because they were rescued uh, by the Lord out of Egypt, and everything was fine, and then God gave them the law, and then they died. It says I. And he says I all the way through the passage. This is very personal. Paul is talking about his own personal testimony. There was a time in my life that I was, I felt alive, but then the law came. And so it's possible that he's talking about his own bar mitzvah. He had graduated from childhood to manhood. He became a son of the law, a son of the commandment. And when that happened, while he was able to keep all of the uh, commandments so far as his religious circumstances he was blameless in accordance with the law remember that from philippians chapter 3 you know you can make everything look just fine on the outside when you go to church and you can have your smiley smile face on have on your nice clothes or whatever it is you do when you come and everyone can think everything's fine what what a model of christianity so and so is yeah but you know like you know who you are let's not fake it like, you know that you struggle with anger, or impatience, or anxiety, or covetousness, or something else. You know that you're a sinner right here. You, can, you, you know it. You deal with it. Well, here's Paul as a, as a child. You know, he's being instructed by his parents, and he's kind of carefree so much, but he knew he's learning what he's supposed to learn. And then now, now the commandment comes, and he's responsible for this commandment as a man, and now he says, all right, I can keep these things, but there's other parts of the commandments that I just, I am struggling with. God was revealing to him that he was a sinner and that his religious endeavors could not save him. There was a problem unveiled by the law. The law demonstrated that maybe he didn't murder someone or dishonor his parents, but he was covetousness and it unveiled his sin. Listen to the words of James. Perhaps we'll have an idea from James what Paul is saying in this text. Listen to what he says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Listen carefully. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire or lust, when it has uh, conceived, gives birth to what? Sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth what? Death. I think that, that's a very similar concept that James is bringing forth. Paul says, I was alive. I was alive without the law, but then I became responsible for the law and it, it, it seemed to awaken sin in me. It revealed sin in me. I, 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 the, the law came alive and I died. I was pronounced guilty. Guilty. And that guilt 
stays with me. Look at verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. That's an interesting expression. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. This is going to require us doing a little bit of work. Are you ready? Work with me. Ready? Leviticus chapter 18 to start with. Leviticus 18. We're talking about God's law, the law of Moses. The law that used to lord over us, that if we're believers, it is no longer our lord. If we're not believers, the the law still doing its work, lording over you, revealing your sin. Condemning you, convicting you, and taking account of your sin. Leviticus 18 and verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, look what it says, he shall live by them. If a person does them, he shall have life by them. I am the Lord. If a person keeps my commandments, he will have life. Maybe you don't like that way that I'm reading that. Well, let's, you, there's no avoiding it in Deuteronomy. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, look at verse 40. God says, Therefore you shall keep His statutes and His commandments, which I command you today. Moses conveying God's law that it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may what prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. What, what is it saying? If you obey God, your life will be long. Is that life? Yes. Look at chapter 5 now. Verse 30 to start with. Go and say to them, return to your tents, but you stand here by me and I will tell you the, tell you the whole congregation and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in the way that the Lord your God commanded you, that you may what? That you may live. That it may go well with you. And that you may what? Live long in the land that you shall possess. Look now at chapter 3. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1. The whole congregation that I uh, command you today, you shall be careful to do. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. That you may live and multiply and go and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Look at chapter 30 now. Deuteronomy 30 verses 15 and 16. See? See, I have set before you today life and good Death and evil. If you obey the commandment of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall what? Live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Now at verses 19 and 20. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice and holding uh, fast to Him, for He is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. So we see the, the, the commandment that promised to give, what? Life has brought death. 
God promised, obey and you'll live long in the land. It's, it's associated with the commandment to children, for children to obey their parents, right? And to honor their parents. It will be well with you. You'll live long in the land. God promises life from his commandments. But because I violate them, it does the opposite. It produces death. I'm not obedient. I'm not a strict adherent to the law. And because of that, I recognize physical death. Physical death in the context of the, the law has its source in sin, right? It starts back in the garden. Remember God says, if you, if you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. Oh, wait a second. And then I kept reading. They ate of the fruit, didn't they? And what happened? Chapter 4, and he died, and he died, and he died, and people have been dying ever since. Physical death is a result of sin. Far worse than physical death, sin results in the consequences of eternal death and separation from God. The law does not provide the power to ensure our obedience, nor does it have a provision for an eternal remedy for our violation of the law. The law does not provide power to ensure our obedience, nor does it have a provision for an eternal remedy to its violation. This is where the gospel swoops in. Take a look now back in Romans, Romans chapter 8, where the law unveils our sin, where the law provokes our sin, where the law produces an understanding that I am condemned and headed for an eternity separate from God because of my sin, the Gospel swoops in. Look at what God says in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be what? fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Gospel swoops in and and supplies what the law has revealed. My sin uses the law nefariously to accomplish, accomplish its end. It reveals my condemnation and God swoops in with the Gospel and rescues. Have you been rescued from your sin that's been revealed by the law. Back in chapter 7 now, sin is deceptive in its promptings about the law. This will just be brief for this one. Sin is deceptive in its promptings about the law. Verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity, same, we just read this, right? Taking a base of operation from the commandment, what does it do? It deceived me and through it killed me. Sin is deceptive in its promptings about the law. Our sinful nature uses the law deceptively. Two people look at the same situation. One sees a restriction that, um, as something that will protect them, and another sees a restriction as something that is a nuisance. Now, this, what I'm about to say, is not uh, to fully expound to you my feelings on face masks. So don't don't judge what I'm about to say based and think I, you understand how I feel about face masks, okay? Yesterday, I was in a Dunkin' Donuts, and I was in line, and there was a guy 
two uh, people in front of me, and he was hot. Not temperature hot. He was angry. And he wanted to, to gain some people on his side. You know what he was saying? That lady over there doesn't have a face mask on. Oh, she's putting us all in danger. And he was trying to kind of like get, get me and the person in front of me to be like, yeah. Um, instead, he got silence. Uh, but so then like that didn't work for him. So, so he started to get very, very upset. I thought I was going to have to put this guy on the ground. This is how upset he was that this other person didn't have a face mask on. You're putting us all at risk, blah, 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 blah. So I'm thinking, all right, here, here it goes. This will be an interesting day. You're going down because you're like going at it with this lady. Why? This lady sees the, the restriction, says, well, uh, you know, I feel this way about it. This says, I see the restriction, I feel this way about it. Two different people see the same restriction and feel about it two different ways. Well, the law produces an opportunity for that deceptiveness Again, this is not, that my, not my comment about the, the, um, the face masks in particular. It's just that they differ in their views on a mandate. More applicable still, think of Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? You've got Adam and Eve in the garden. And God says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you'll die. We understand that God was protecting Adam and Eve from a power... A power that would replace God with something else. We understand that on this side of this accounting. They see this. The serpent comes along and says, God is withholding from you the best blessing. God is withholding you from you equality with himself. You, you can be like God. Two different perspectives. One command. The law, when employed by sin, is viewed in one way. The law, when viewed from a redeemed standpoint, is viewed a different way. Which is why when John says in John chapter, 1 John chapter 5, that the law, the commandment, is not grievous to us. It was grievous to us. It was. Because it burdened us and we couldn't fulfill it and it condemned us. On this side, as believers, knowing that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, that the law can't condemn me, the law can't bring wrath, the law is not my master any longer. Though That commandment, I say, okay, Lord, you want me to love my neighbor as myself? All right. I'm going to have a hard time doing that. Please help me. I want to. You want me to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? I'm going to have a hard time doing that because I'm kind of selfish. But I want to. Lord, help me. Two different perspectives. An unredeemed perspective that uses the law as a base of operation to deceive us and kill us and a completely different perspective. One that's been redeemed. I see the law as an opportunity to obey the Lord and please Him. The good law was used deceptively to bring spiritual death and the consequences of physical death. Take a look now back in chapter 7 in verse 12. Final point and quick is verse 12. The law is good. For the law is holy and the commandment holy and righteous and good. Frank Thielman gives us a nice summary of this. The law is holy in the sense that it shares the qualitative distinctiveness of God's moral purity. It is just 
in the sense that it is impartial and equitable. It is good in the sense that it upholds what is best for society. Sin used law as a tool and the coming of law as an opportunity to accomplish its purpose of increasing human rebellion against God. But this is not the fault of the law. I think we can see from verse 12 that the law in its entirety and as individual parts is good. That's why he has two parts of this verse. He says, the law is holy. That's the larger picture. All of the law contained in that one word. The law is holy. And the commandment, that's an individual command. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul says it like this in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if it is used lawfully. So you can hardly have a better friend than the law. You can hardly have a better friend than the law because it shows you that you're sinful and you need a remedy. The better friend is the gospel. Because the gospel is that Jesus, God's gospel is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed God's holy law. The Bible says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Jesus Christ laid down His life as a once-for-all sacrifice for our sin. Romans 6.10 says this, For the death He died, He died to sin. How, how many times? Once for all. But he, the life He lives, He lives to God. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 and following, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down. Done. It's finished. Once for all. Sacrifice for our sin. The Gospel calls you to see your sin, to turn from your sin, and to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sin. That sin that's revealed and accounted through the God's holy law. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30 that these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to do what? Repent! Turn! And to do what? Acts 16.31 They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's true for you. It's true for your household. In this passage, in Romans chapter 7, Paul has told us that the law is not sin. The law is good. The real problem is our sinful nature. And our sinful nature we can be, uh, we can be rescued from but only through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. There's only one way to be rescued from the law that, that reveals my sin. Only one way to be rescued from my sinful nature that is provoked by the law. God supplies that rescue in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you been rescued from yourself, from your sin, and from the condemnation that your sin deserves? The only way is to turn from your sins and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says you will be saved. The law is good. 
It is not sin. The law is glorious because it reveals my need and that need is supplied. Let's pray together. Father, do your work in us for your glory's sake. I pray for anyone listening that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, that even now, even in this moment, having their sin unveiled and their need demonstrated, I pray that they would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.